John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1403.ju0113, certificate number 34914, the Voyager Golden Records. I should like to extend the greetings of the government and the people of Canada to the extraterrestrial inhabitants I wish to extend greetings and friendly wishes to all who may encounter this voyager and receive this message. When you think about it, it's just, it's kind of insane, this endeavor that we have embarked upon, trying to collect all human knowledge and accomplishment for oh, an audience you, that may never have seen a human. You mean the omnibus? Yes. The omnibus strikes me as, I don't want to say hubris or folly, but but I had no idea what kind of a mammoth undertaking this would be. I thought we'd be done by now. Uh-huh. I would be like, we'll do the Noid, we'll do Milli Vanilli, uh, we'll do something about the, the Nazis. Yeah. And, and then uh, wrap it up. Yeah. Well, the aliens can settle for that. Wrap it up with some Brady Bunch and we're out. It turns out there's a lot more human civilization and accomplishment than I... It was aware of. Well, I feel like it isn't hubristic. Like there's something intrinsic to us as human beings that we want to be understood, that we want to leave a record. I mean, as far as we know so far, we're the only ones who have achieved this amount of self-awareness. What if we are the only self-conscious life the universe has produced? Which is, as Carl Sagan would say, inconceivable. Right? Or, I mean, I, he didn't maybe use that word, but... <laughs> he, he was always doing Princess Bride quotes. Inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, I saw Carl Sagan at Princess Bride Con. Inconceivable. Uh, but no, I mean, the, the premise of the, of the size and shape of the universe is that we cannot possibly be the only life forms that have even this amount of self-awareness and this amount of technological advance. It would be super unlikely. And so we want to communicate, but, and, 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 and part of that is that we feel very alone here. Um, we can't talk to whales. We can't talk to crows as much as we'd like. Yeah, we're constantly trying to talk to crows. And we're, I, 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 I am. I can see the scratches on your face right now. Well, that's my number one thing. Every time I walk out into the yard, I'm like, hello, crow, I see you. And they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our, our collective Borg mind sees you. <laughs> and it's true on an individual level as well, right? That people want to leave a mark. I mean, there's the people who built the high, the pyramids left graffiti. Sure. You know, like uh, 
Hotep was here or whatever, you know, like you, you want to feel like you didn't just die and rot in the desert for nothing. Well, and think about how much of our culture is just one person trying to say to other people, do you hear me? Can you understand uh, me? <laughs> I exist. I exist. I exist. I exist. Yeah, that's, yeah. My, that's my Twitter feed. I'm quoting. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I'm sad. You know, like love me, love me, love me. I mean, that's everything, including so much of what we build. Would you say that's the message of the omnibus? Love me, love me, love me. No, I don't Future think. Future Earth, <laughs> please, if you remember anyone, love us. I think the message of the omnibus is we're doing a podcast because we're, uh, we have faces for radio. And also this allows us to not have to go outside. No, I want them to love us. Like I want yeah. when the future people unplug their brains from their robot bodies for the night and, you know, a little claw hand lifts the brain into its nutrient tank for the night. I want them to be dreaming of us. Well, that's it's the a, other it's thing, immortality. right? We want to be loved, but also on our terms. We want to establish yeah. the terms. We don't want to be consumed. We're like, hey, future, let us tell you about the defenestration of Prague. Right. You know, we're not, uh, we're not doing some confessional Sylvia Plath podcast here. Because the danger is that the future will love us as food <laughs> or will... <laughs> You know, that, that this is the thing about that scares us so much about space, why science fiction is so consumed with unleashing. I mean, if, if the aliens know we're here, we don't know whether they're bad or not. Are they going to be nice? Yeah. Yeah, we are, you and I are not the first people to try to create some kind of epitaph for the human race. Although I think we're the... We're, we're clearly the, we're the premier ones. We're doing a great job of it. Oh, man. <clears throat> because like, we're building on what's come before. Sure. Uh, the, the first attempt, I mean, people have been putting time capsules on the ground for a long time, but the first attempt to do it on a species-wide, planet-wide basis was the NASA probes of the 1970s. Is that right? <clears throat> there was no, there was no, Leonardo didn't attempt to put everything he knew into a codex or everything we knew. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm thinking of, you know, like, for, for what audience, you I know, see. the idea that there might be an external audience, people of a different place or time. Right. I mean, people in Leonardo's day might've been like, I bet there are men on the sun. Perhaps there are women on the moon, <laughs> but nobody was ever like, let's send them photographs of our bowels. Well, Whereas, but, <clears throat> but I mean, do we have a sense that the Egyptians, why were they leaving those tombs? if not to communicate to an unknowable future people. I mean, certainly within their religion, it was meaningful that the uh, the spirit would be conveyed. Sure. But that was more like the mummification and the stuff you buried. You're right. I think the size of the pyramid is pretty immaterial to any particular spiritual belief. Yeah. That's more like, I existed. Right. And they couldn't help but hope that those graves would be unearthed and and viewed by some future. They They... They maybe were trying to protect them against all the ones who opened them and just melted down the gold. Right. Are we going to leave a curse with the omnibus? Should, should we, when oh. we put this in the ground, should we leave some kind of... Seal it with a curse? Evil curse. Whosoever findeth this podcast <laughs> and listeneth to these mattress ads <laughs> shall die under the seventh son of their seventh son. I'm glad that, you're, that uh, whenever you re- revert to a pontificating voice, it's always in the in the language of the King James Bible. That's, that's how I think. <laughs> that's how I think unto myself. Unto thyself. <laughs> Don't you think uh, unto thyself in the, in the, in the low in the very same way? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm usually yelling at myself in a voice of the honeymooners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
your default inner voice is Ralph Cramden. Yeah, Ralph Cramden. One of these days, <laughs> John. <laughs> Uh, the NASA probes of the 1970s were probably the same impulse as the pyramids, but it's more, it, you know, it is, you know, kind of casting a, a bottle, but, you know, a pyramid, you know, it's going to be left. That, there you feel like you're leaving a monument. This really is more like, as Carl, astronomer Carl Sagan says, a bottle in the cosmic ocean. Right. We hope someone will see this, but we, they might not, and we will never know if they do or not. But, and precisely a bottle in the ocean. Right. And, and maybe because of that, we're kind of doing it for us. I've never heard any of the astronomers say that. But, you know, with vanishingly small odds that anyone was ever going to see these artifacts we shot into space, you know, it really kind of is, what does it say about us that we're collecting these things? Do you think, is that true of you and me? Are we making the omnibus for us? Yeah. I mean... Is no one ever going to hear this but us? The, 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 I mean... The, I'm having an existential crisis. The, the, I, I think that a lot of people are hearing this besides us. But our impulse to do this is... I mean, from the very beginning, we recognize that this is the stuff that we are doing anyway, cataloging this stuff in our own brains for fun. We would be sitting around talking about the Voyager probes today anyway. Why not record this amazing conversation? Sure. All we had were, were our own children and spouses or lady friends. Who are completely bored with us at this super point. Super eye-rolling. And then I had my rock and roll culture of people that didn't care either or were like, yeah, yeah, man. Okay, well, let's get on stage now. Or it's the, and you were like, is that I mean, why? Is that why one of your records is called "Pretending to Listen"? <laughs> the Long Winters, pretending to listen. So we were doing this, and it was like, wait a minute, like this is important. We're not just going down these rabbit holes at night. We didn't read all those encyclopedias for nothing. Like it, tell us we have not wasted our lives. Someone, sure, it matters. But but this is an old impulse, right? The Although the idea of, like you say, communicating to the future directly is fairly recent. I think the... the People did not think fourth dimensionally. No, not at all. And, and I think it's a 20th century idea. I think we had to develop these things in fiction and science fiction before they started to actually enter science. The, it's the, not a natural way to think about your life that you should try to talk to your descendants or you should try to talk to aliens if they exist or, or could aliens exist i mean that had to be invented by authors and poets before scientists got a hold of it well and then the first time post-world war ii when we were sending those initial like the first orbiting satellite right sputnik goes up everyone on earth hears it with their shortwave radios as it goes over and that was in the in its own time incredibly unifying even though we were the the Americans were in a panic because we were afraid the Soviet yes. Union was beaming radiation down on us or something. Uh, but, but the idea that something could beep and everyone would hear it at once. Yeah, you'd hear it in South America. You would hear it in China. Eventually, that gave us social media, unfortunately. Ugh. Also still beeping at me constantly from space. Like Sputnik is like the first Twitter account. Everything I say, everyone I know should hear, blah, beep, blah, beep, blah, beep, blah. Beep. <laughs> I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Making sound, making sound. RT, if you like this beep. Fave, if you like this beep. Uh, but, but yeah, but once, that, once that was an option. Sure, it was broadcasting. No, no longer did we think of ourselves as just nations against nations. We could see the planet as a, as a spaceship Earth. Sure, back then your idea was like, your biggest idea would be, I want to say this to France. Yeah, right. That's like the most you could do. Right. August 25th, 2012 was a big day 
in the annals of space exploration. Let's see. Oh, I was going to say, what was I doing August 25th, 2012? Yeah, that's what people are going to wonder. Like, was John watching NASCAR or? Yeah, let's go back here. I've got my calendars. 2012, August 25th. Let's see. Let's see. The London Olympics had ended two weeks prior. You were not watching uh, hand, team handball. Actually, oh, wow. I actually received my first Casper mattress. <laughs> not kidding. Is this an ad Absolutely read? not kidding. Uh, it arrived in the mail. And then Jonathan Colton came for a visit. So he was here for that week. And then um, what is this event? A week after that, oh, I I was moderating some events at Bumbershoot. You're paging through a large uh, leather binder, yeah. In which these parchments and these are all your the notes you write down at the end of the day every day. They're well, I don't. It's They're a, kept by one of my scribes. You don't have your own commonplace book. You have, you have interns. <laughs> this is my uh, doomsday book. Uh, that's great that you have interns with quills. Yeah. Um, what were you doing on the twenty fifth? Oh, I was probably reading the news, which I'm sure you and Jonathan Colton saw. First of all, that Neil Armstrong passed away that day. Oh. The man who faked the first <laughs> landing on the moon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, he outlived Stanley Kubrick, his director. But that was also an even bigger day in the history of space exploration. On that day, NASA estimates the first human-made object left the solar system. That was the day on which Voyager 1 passed the heliopause. Wow. Which is the kind of semi-imaginary scientific boundary that separates the little bubble of our solar system from interstellar space. What is that? It, on the other side of that line, do things no longer orbit the sun? Uh, it's not gravitational as much as it is solar wind. So our, so our sun kicks out this kind of ionized gas that we call a wind right. that, you know, kind of creates a different kind of a medium in space than you would get between solar systems. Oh, so it's like different, the, the plasmas have different yes. constitutions? The plasmas are literally different. And, wow. you, and you get past, B, so you get past the heliopause. That's the limit at which the, the solar wind has any influence. No longer any detectable plasma from our sun. You just get the hydrogen and helium and dust and cosmic rays or whatever that bounces around interstellar space. Just normal plasma or or what you would say normative plasma. <laughs> less less sunny plasma. Wow. Uh, and that was the day at which Voyager 1, this 1977 probe, left the solar system for the first time. So wow. it, it took it, what, 40, 45 years. I Traveling guess. at at what I, did I can that, imagine I did that were... wrong. Thirty five years. <laughs> See, if yeah. NASA if NASA had uh, not double checked its math, they never would have got that far. And so traveling at at. Uh... Incredible speeds, it I is, would imagine. It is currently traveling at a speed of around 11 miles a second, mm. which is pretty good. That's good. That's imagine fast. how fast that would feel in a In a, in a Studebaker. <laughs> yeah. But if you were just sitting on this probe, which you could do, it's about the size of a, of a tiny car, like a, like a subcompact car. Uh-huh. Um, if you were just to sit on the top of it, like, like it was a Herbie the Love Bug, zooming through space, you would have no sense of distance. Uh, right. Or of speed. So plasma, space plasma isn't blowing your it's hair back. It's not whizzing by you like <laughs> hyperspace in the Millennium Falcon. When Voyager 1 in 1977 was launched and and Voyager 2, they were launched both in the same year. Well, I'm <clears throat> I'm sorry to be like a space nerd here because I I know you're a space nerd and space nerds, you know, support each other. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> um, Voyager 2 was actually, uh, paradoxically, uh, launched 
immediately before Voyager 1. What? Yeah. It Wait, was like, I did not know this. Yeah, like two weeks, 16, 16 days before Voyager 1, Voyager 2 was launched. Waka, waka, waka. Was Vo is Vo so Voyager 1 is like a prequel? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, they had different, uh, you know, they, uh, during the, the evolution of that project, right, the initial idea was to send out I mean, a space barge that had, that was like a sarcophagus. And I, because of budget constraints, it got changed and they had different trajectories. And Voyager 2 actually had a very different path through our solar system. And Voyager 1 was going to exit the solar system first. It had... Which it did. Which the, it did. The day Neil Armstrong died in grief. Right. So we, so it's, I, I believe, called Voyager 1 because it was actually on the quicker voyage, but Voyager 2. So all of this, uh, they were launched because there was this, this, this incredible uh, alignment. Convergence in the heavens. Yeah, of all the planets. Jupiter and, and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune were in a very fortuitous position for a probe to swing by all of them and take pictures. Because they had just recently developed the concept of gravitational boost, uh, where they would, you know, swing slingshots. around Jupiter to get to Saturn. And, and they saw, they foresaw this in the sixties far enough in advance that they were like, we can do it. We can do it. If we just get going, if we just get cooking now, we can build these things. And there's a Star Trek episode about it, but they use it to go back in time. So, Ugh. so I guess NASA was very disappointed. Ugh. Maybe that's why Voyager 1 comes second. Did it go back in time? You know, Star Trek's desire to uh, periodically go back in time in their movies, it, and it just infuriates me so much. Stop doing that. You don't need to go back in time. My son was watching some other Star Trek show that I've never seen, and like, they're just hanging out in the late 90s, and Sarah Silverman is in it? And I was like, wait, what is this? This is not, is this an episode of news radio? What are you watching? Yeah, stop it. Stop doing that. Stay in the 23rd century. It's good there. Please, please. You can read books about the... 20th century. You don't have to go back. That's what they're always doing on Star Trek. They've all got like shelves full of leather bound books and they're all like, well, as you know, in the late 1940s, there was a period on earth known as the, come on. Yeah. I mean the holodeck. Yeah. That, right. You could just go in there and it could be a public library in 1985. You could see everything you need. They're always doing old timey stuff. I don't know if I've complained about this to you. They're always like putting <laughs> ships in bottles and doing, doing like string quartets and plays. It's the future. Like play video games. I know it drives me crazy too. <laughs> But yeah, so those of us of that generation kind of grew up on this broadening of the scientific horizons that came with all these amazing <laughs> pictures of the rings of Saturn and here's Uranus has new moons we didn't know about. We and were building little models of these Neptune spacecrafts. has moons. Oh yeah, out of toothpicks and popsicle sticks. I think and I just flinging said, them at our siblings. I think I just said space craps. That's not <laughs> what I meant. Spacecrafts. Uh, <laughs> and I was wondering if a lot of these kind of. Uh, you know, the Bond villains we have today, the space billionaires of our day, you know, they're about the right age. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, all these guys were of the right age to have been kids or teens when these photos were coming back. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the formative, uh, I will build a space station kind of moment, I bet. Yeah. For, for a lot of these guys. One day I too will go to space. I will be rocketing uh, through the planets. I think a lot of us of, of our generation uh, feel a tremendous disappointment. Not that we don't have space Packs or whatever the name of that band is, we sh we should have jetpacks. We should have space craps. Uh, we should have space <laughs> space craps. I am tired of crapping on Earth like a peon. But philosophically, the idea that we are an exploratory people, and that sending things out into space and going into space is the next evolution of our, our nature, our, our questing nature. And it's so hard that we know we can do it, and we kind of decided not to. Oh. We we, we kind of got over it. 
It's so annoying. The and moon again. We spend so much money building fighter planes and so and and we cannot even manage to budget. I mean, our rockets now are launched, you know, with Russian rockets because we're just not funding this, which seems so to me like deathly unimaginative. And and it causes the world to shrink, you know? Yeah, and at the time, this really did capture the public imagination, this idea that we were sending something to the outer planets. God, it captures my imagination today. It's, we're going to have a footprint there, just like Neil Armstrong's footprint on that soundstage in, in, uh, in Arizona. <laughs> Stop doing that. <laughs> uh, wait, I thought you were a believer. No, you're not a believer. Of, the, of what? That the moon, moon landings, landings were faked? faked? Why would you think that of me? You know I'm not. Okay. I thought that was Come like on. the one thing I thought I knew about you. No. That's chemtrails. Chemtrails that's is what I'm I always introducing you. This is John Roderick. He thinks the moon landings were fake. I think the earth is flat and I believe in chemtrails. He pronounces his name with three syllables. I didn't realize you were teasing me for a second there. Uh, and so as part of this kind of idea that this would be, you know, really spark public interest in space, um, these probes all had artifacts on them. This had started with the Pioneer plaque, which uh, maybe you can picture. I had a picture of two nude humans. Was it, was it the Leonardo? Oh no, it was, uh, it was two, it was the cover of, uh, of Yoko Ono's uh, <laughs> yeah. and John Lennon's Two Virgins record. No, it was a Playboy centerfold from the month that the probe was released. They wanted the aliens <laughs> to be able to date exactly who this was. Uh-huh. They will be like, ah, Miss February. She was wearing knee high white patent leather boots. <laughs> it's kind of this um, schoolroom looking picture of a, of a couple. And I got criticized pretty much from all corners. They, they seem kind of Caucasian, oh, yeah. which is problematic. Only the man is waving and the woman's doing nothing, sure. which, you know, seems a little anti Emblematic of the time. Uh, and they're nude, which annoyed... Um, Nelson Rockefeller and which, yeah. <laughs> John Birch Society. <laughs> which annoyed people who had never been nude and right. d- didn't know what these things were. Didn't believe that nude was real. They did not believe genitalia was ex- existed. They thought it was faked on a soundstage in they, Nevada. They'd only ever seen it through linen, through a curtain of linen. <laughs> so it was <laughs> grotesquely high definition. But I do remember them showing this uh, on the PBS educational show, 321 Contact in the 70s. They showed a picture of this plaque and they had the, the man and the woman kind of talk to each other about this new adventure it, they were going on. It was animated. I don't know if it was, was it cheaply animated? I don't remember. Like, I'll, cause I was just staring at the nipples, you know? Yeah, sure. Like I was a kid looking at like, they, they had put these two naked people on the screen. And so, you know, they, they sent, the idea was to send any potential aliens, a picture of what we looked like as a species. One of us is waving the guy cause it's his job. Sure. Uh, and then there's other, there's other things. There's a picture of our solar system and whatnot, you know, just to, to leave them a little guide so they could come invade and eat us. But we, we, uh, wrestle with this all the time in the omnibus, how to communicate to an unknowable audience, the key elements, and also like how to get them to interpret those elements as right. we intend, like a picture of two naked people, how would they know whether we were three centimeters tall or 30 feet tall. How do they know it's people? Like right. what, if, what if that looks a lot like one of the baked goods on their planet? And they're right. like, this is a cookbook. <laughs> yeah. What, what reference points are you going to use? And this got even harder in the case of the Voyager probes, which carried on them these golden records, which looked just like a, just like an LP. That was the highest form of recording at the time. We wanted to impress aliens with our musical technology, so we sent them <laughs> some an LPs, LP, but not made out of wax or shellac, made out of, um, well, I guess, copper plated with gold. And so we sent Deep Purple's Machine Head. 
obviously, because that was our that was our chief accomplishment by at that point. We thought the aliens would enjoy metal machine music by Lou Reed. Uh-huh. They're like they're gonna have kind of weird avant garde taste. They are not gonna enjoy it any more than we did. <laughs> we don't want them. <laughs> Why should they have a good time? Like we, we should have sent music for airports. I mean that would. They're getting it for free. Like we don't need to, we don't need to send them our best music. So what? This is the one cent record club. Is yeah, that, it's yeah. Uh, it's Columbia House. They sent in uh, they sent in a penny and we sent them seven records. <laughs> well, we had been sending them uh, like I personally send John Cage's four minutes and thirty three seconds right to, to the aliens all Total the time. Silence, and they, they have not replied at all. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so so you have to send reference points like how are they going to interpret this golden circle as an object and how are they going to know how to access the information they're on. Right. So all of this, I guess, then suggests questions about, uh, again, Leonardo's golden ratio, um, like how much of who we are and is uh, how much of life on this planet is somewhat inevitable. Yeah, and what's just accident and convention. Yeah, because you do see like a kind of bipedal, like a like a hemispheric construction to almost all... Yeah, if some if some non-bipedal asymmetric alien sees the waving guy and to him like that's not what a life looks like. Right. He's not going to be like, "Oh, hey, this guy's waving." And this is something that in our science fiction we're always trying to do and and when we talk to futurelings, you know, we imagine something with 8 or 10 legs or something that's made out of gas, but is that necessarily more accurate? I mean, there are quite a few well, let's see. I mean, there are a lot of six-legged things on this planet. There's a few in this in the bunker with us today. <laughs> a lot more than there are two-legged things. Sure. But but almost everything has a leg except for worms. Some so, snakes. So any of the uh, anyway, this all begs those questions. Ah, oh, God, I just did it. It doesn't beg those questions. It certainly it, does not. It asks those questions. It raises them. It's, it raises questions about what like how much of what we would find on a distant planet would still be constructed out of carbon. And uh, I mean, what, what happens if your planet has an ammonia atmosphere and yet life uh, finds a way evolves or life. It may not be a nude waving white dude, right? It could be a bottle of ammonia. The, uh, that can think the, the records were a pet project of Carl Sagan, who was a leading turtleneck-wearing astronomer of the time, and also a science popularizer. Let's all raise a glass. Let's pour one out for Carl Sagan, to the late great, what, what do you think the drink is for Carl Sagan? What drink should we pour out? I mean, his, I'm always pouring memory? out green Gatorade for everybody, but 
But uh, <laughs> that coincidentally, that was his favorite drink. Actually. I think Carl Sagan, you know, you pour out some chamomile tea. Exactly. Right. A very weak herbal tea <laughs> of the kind that he enjoyed, but thought kind of angered up the blood a little. He was an exceedingly uh, a calm, kind of wise appearing guy who appeared on a lot of television at the time as a science popularizer. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Very American, but with also an exotically strange Yeah, kind of heavily accent. lidded eyes and yeah. maybe slightly but he spoke, olive complexion. Spoke with a kind of, I mean, I can't do it. I used to be able, we all used to do Carl Sagan accents, but I can't. But I mine can't. never sounded like Davy and Goliath, the, uh, the Christian claymation cartoons. <laughs> Billions, billions and billions, billions, and, yeah. A resonant voice and a, and an odd way of of pronouncing certain words. And he wanted to make sure that his golden records would be accessible to the widest possible audience. Sort uh, of like Dr. Dre. He he also has some gold <laughs> records. He wanted accessible. He, yeah, he wanted to break out. He, uh, he he signed the big label deal. Don't forget about Dre. We did not forget about Dre. Um, so he put an aluminum cover on the record that started from first principles. Like you don't even, like how do you tell somebody how many seconds, how many revolutions per minute if they don't even have minutes? Right. You know, minutes are invented by us. Right. So he starts with like the 21 centimeter emission line of hydrogen, which is like a spectral line where hydrogen makes a state change that would really jump out to any probe-catching aliens. And hydrogen being an element that will be found throughout the, most, the universe. The most abundant element in the universe. Right. He didn't pick something only we have, like uh, marinara sauce. <laughs> right, or, yeah, it's not like americium or some uh, some element that we've just recently basically found slash made. The, the aliens would, pr if they're catching probes, they'd probably have americium, yeah. which we use in... Um, Smoke detectors, I think. They probably, they wouldn't call it americium. They wouldn't name it after America. Right. That would be odd. They call, they call Americanos something different too when they order coffee. Well, sure. We shouldn't even call America, America. We should call it Amerigo. Yeah. We, why should it be? He's like an Italian dude. Yeah, right. He came here like once. Like, you know where I've been once? Epcot. Like Epcot <laughs> should be called Kencott, in my opinion. You know what? I think so too. Let's start a, <laughs> let's start a plan. We all agree. <laughs> anyway, so from those first principles, like here's what hydrogen is. Here's a second. Here's how fast the disc, they show a picture of the disc spinning with a stylus in the groove and they include the stylus right. with the oh, disc. Oh, they sent a, a needle. Yeah. So we're, like, we're sending a, a spirograph set into space, basically, like a, one of these build your own crystal radio kits. I mean, this is genius because I've done some DJing, some small amount of DJing. And I don't mean DJing like in big oh, yeah. clubs where everybody's uh, dancing in bubbles. Everybody remembers you from your, from your rave DJing. <laughs> DJing when I, when I DJed in Barcelona that, that uh, summer. No, but like, you know, you go to a bar and you have two turntables and you play some records. What I didn't realize the first few times I did it was that the bar does not provide the stylus. DJs bring their own needles. Really? Yeah, because the needles. I've seen wear DJs out. with their own needles, but I didn't know they were phonograph needles, if you know what I'm saying. Lol. Or that's not actually a lol. That's kind of like a. Mm. <laughs> Shut up, Ken. <laughs> Suck. S U K. Um, but, but yeah, if you just use the needles that they have available, they're all worn out and they sound terrible. So it's one of the tools that a DJ carries with them are like high grade, cool so it's like needles. The, it's like the pen in a hotel room. It just, it's there, but it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. It's only I, I if you no can't idea. find another thing. So when I showed up to my first DJ gig and they were like, you're not going to use our needles. They're like covered with beer and, and cigarette smoke. 
And it was true. It sounded terrible. So we obviously, Carl Sagan, like, was a DJ. Exactly. He understood. We're like, not going to provide you the turntable or the amplifiers. That's your problem, uh, Tau Seti 2. But here's a, here's a stylus to put in the groove. The, the, the future aliens are going to, or rather, I don't know, like, yeah, I guess future aliens, because they are still in our future. But they're going to wonder, 33 and a third revolutions per minute? Why would you choose that? What a weird choice. I don't actually know what the correct, like, I don't know if it matches any audio system. Because we, you know, we didn't have to worry about being, making it consistent with Toshiba or whatever. Like, right. We were sending it into space. But the cover then shows um, it doesn't have the nude humans because of the outcry. No, really? Yes. Even they, on Voyager? Yeah, they got, um, God uh, and Jerry Fall were successful in getting the nude humans replaced. Are they just wearing like uh, like puffy sleeved dresses and uh, yeah. pilgrim hats? They are. <laughs> <laughs> They're wearing nice tailored suits and uh, the wife is carrying a, uh, a jello salad. A jello mold <laughs> in her hand. He has Florsheim shoes on. I, I don't, how could you be so small as to complain about nipples in space? Yeah. When you're trying think to think about communicate. it, if, if your main goal is limitation of nipples yeah. and space is a hundred percent nipple free zone confirmed so far, you want to make sure you don't introduce that first nipple. Cause what if it, it creates an epidemic? Sometimes I think of the futurelings as being just made of nipples. 100% nipples. Think about that. Well, that would be somebody's nightmare. Just a nipple creature. In 1977. They use silhouettes instead. So best of both worlds. They can kind of see what we look like. Silhouette. They can't check out our junk. That is so useless. You're so angry right now. Silhouette? Is it like some cameo that they got made at Disneyland? <laughs> That's right. They went to Main Street and had a little silhouette. It's so if the aliens land and we're talking with someone behind a window shade, they can be like, hey, those are the guys from the Voyager Pro. Oh, I'm so mad. I mean, that is infuriating. Well, the more dangerous thing is they put a map. They put, uh, they put uh, a map. To Earth? Yeah. Oh, don't do that. Haven't they ever read a science fiction book? Well, at the time, the enlightened thing was, uh, no, and any alien advanced enough to find this will, uh, will have an advanced ethical. Of course. And they'll want to be our friends. Of course. They won't just be looking to, like, flesh mine uh, some, like, distant planets to provide, like, blood meal for their worm children. No, in the process of inventing deep space technology, somehow they also became very, because that happens in our culture. As people become more successful, True. they become super nice and ethical. That always happens. <laughs> <laughs> Although it was based on this premise that we had, we were seeing in real time, the, the more we went into space, the more, I mean, every astronaut has kind of indicated, right? That, that you don't see borders up there, John. Yeah, no borders. You should have, they should have sent a poet. One planet, one people. <laughs> Spaceship Earth. That was a thing that uh, uh, One Planet, One People was a slogan in the 80s used by this kind of Used like, by astronauts? Not by astronauts, <laughs> but but by hippies. And uh, my- We never sent a hippie into space. We should have sent a hippie. Can you know that though? In all the astronauts, you can say without question that none of them are hippies. I can't even say there's no nipples in space anymore. I don't know yeah, what to believe. Nipples everywhere up there now. <laughs> but my conservative friends in high school used to try and, if, you know, if I got the better of them in a political argument, they would get in my face and go, one planet, one people, bro. As though I had ever said that. Is that that's like a parody of your, yeah. of your, I see. That was what it was to be vibes. a Democrat in Anchorage in, in 1984. <laughs> so that's a very hurtful bumper sticker <laughs> to was. you still. It was. I was I'm like, going oh. to take it off my Prius now that I know that. <laughs> So in our day, like contemporary with us, there's a popular scientist, uh, Stephen Hawking, recently deceased, kind of the, maybe the Carl Sagan of our day. Right. Um, 
Carl Sagan slash Einstein of our time. Yes. And with the great gimmick that he's like, had Lou Gehrig's disease, but survived for decades. Uh, against all odds. With a robot voice who he seems to be, have a very kind of futuristic authority when he speaks to us. Right. And he has constantly warned about giving the aliens a map, like stop sending out signals, stop beaming them things. And his idea is not that they'll be, um, they might be evil and want to kill us. It's just, they'll be so far advanced that uh, they won't even recognize us as another species. It would be like humans landing on an island and swatting a mosquito or trying to kill the local smallpox. Oh, I see. So it would just sound like buzzing to them? Yeah. Like, yeah. They, you know, it would not trouble them. They'd be so far advanced, it would not trouble them morally in any way, you know, that they terraformed our world into one of their ammonia farms. Although we have a tendency, and this is the Star Trek phenomenon, right, that to, to imagine that everyone we would contact out there would more or less be technologically pretty close to us. Um, you know, everybody that you meet in a Star Trek universe. He just looks, they look like us, but they have like a, a slightly different forehead yeah, or big, temples. Big eyebrows, and they, they use space swords instead of space guns, but more or less like same level. They even listen to like jazz, but it's like Klingon jazz or whatever. So why would... Why would Hawking be so paranoid about uh, like super advanced civilizations not being even able to conceive of us? I mean, if they find a thing and it's got scribbles on it, it's going to be the first one of those they ever saw. Like what if the difference between them and us is the same as us and a fire ant? And, you know. But if a fire ant made a thing that we were. But the, it just matters the difference. Oh. Like what if their things are, you know. So Hawking's just saying it's better. futile? We're sending all this stuff out there and it doesn't matter? I think he's saying it's a risk. Like, let's say there's a, let's say there's a 98% chance the aliens are chill. Yeah. You know. Right. Which would be nice to think. But in the 2% case of unchill aliens, whatever that factor is, you know, that could be planetary devastation. So you don't want to, it's like Pascal's wager, but with unchill aliens. Well, but that's the thing about being a, a voyaging people are a voyaging being, gotta right? Take, you got to take some risks. You take that risk. You take the risk. In this case, though, we're not voyaging. We're just like sending out, come kill us billboards. A voyager. Hello. <laughs> Viger, I call it. Voyager one and two. Well, the cool thing is the map was not good. Sag oh. Sagan had this great idea that he could, um, you would map the earth relative to 14 nearby pulsars. Yeah. And on the diagram, the, the uh, little dotted lines connecting our central sun to the pulsars has the pattern produced by those pulsars. Uh -huh. okay. So you should, you know, you could use that as a landmark. And That's a good like, idea. This is, they'll get right over here. They'll be great. Sure. Um, they'll be here for hors d'oeuvres. But what it, we now know is that, first of all, there are like billions of pulsars. We yeah. just knew fewer of them then. Billions so and billions. <laughs> so, Davey. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, if, it would be like if you're camping at Yellowstone and they're like, where's your campground? And you'll be like, here are 14 trees. Right. You know, it's just not, a, not as much of a landmark as you think. And the other problem is that it turns out pulsars are only pulsars like if they're pulsing at you. Oh, so it's directional. Yeah. So they would not be able to... The aliens would not be like, oh, let's find 14 pulsars that look uh, like this. Oh, so it's a super troll. He's like, <laughs> here's our map. Neener, neener. The only way you can read it is if you're standing on our planet. <laughs> the other thing is the record disc only contains Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick, Ra uh, Rick Astley oh, over and over. psych. That was super mean. Why you would we do that? Rick rolled. Uh, no, it does not contain that. It's essentially a 90 minute mixtape. 
Sagan was really good friends with a guy named Tim Ferriss, who mm -hmm. was an astronomer and among other things, I think the science editor of Rolling Stone. Yeah, brah. Which that's what you want, 1970s, right? 1970s. I bet he's smoked a doob or two. <laughs> yeah, you want the uh, uh, the Greal Marcus of <laughs> astronomy, I guess. Um, and so he says, hey, I want to shoot a record into space. And of course, this guy, I'm sure, has like been waiting his whole life to hear that sentence. Yes. Is this the same Tim Ferriss that has a podcast? Is There's a podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show. Uh, I, feel, it, I, I feel like think, when I Googled this, it was two S's and that's some um, Yeah, I think that Tim Ferriss, dude. he's like a self-help bra. Yes, I keep no. saying bro and bra. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> you got inside my head now and I'm, I'm just picturing all these guys like wearing bandanas. Yeah, and shark's tooth necklaces and whatnot. But he is tech bro, right? Tim, Tim Ferriss or like yes. self-help bro? Yeah, don't make a self-help podcaster send your message into space because it's just going to be him telling you how to flip houses or something. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to send the aliens 90 minutes of my tip. Yeah. The record is gold because that's what you're going to make. Some crazy prosperity gospel. <laughs> that's right. Listen, aliens, are you, are you living up to your potential? No, this is Ferris with one S. Oh, okay. And Ferris's idea was, hey, I'm going to hook you up with John Lennon. Cause you know, uh -huh. who is the cosmic, uh, bring the world together with music mind of the age. Sure. Who's the cosmic wife beater that we want to send out <laughs> into the universe. And he wants to be the naked guy on the, on the box too. Uh, but Lennon had just left the country for tax purposes, apparently, which I guess uh -huh. he should have spoilers. He should have stayed out. It turns out and would have lived longer, but John Lennon recommended a guy named Jimmy Iovine. Am I saying that right? You are. The, who later became a big, like he produced Damn the Torpedoes by Tom Petty and later hip hop. Like I think he discovered Tupac. Yeah. He's a major, major record uh, executive. I think he founded Beats. By Dr. Dre. Somewhat by Dre, but slightly by this guy. Jimmy Iovine. It should be Beats by Dre and Iovine. Or it might be Iovine, you know, but I mispronounce everything. So let's say Iovine. Okay. Iovine sounds more like definitely something you want a hospital drip of. Like, get him on <laughs> get six some. milligrams of Iovine stat. Uh, he, at the time, he was just an engineer, but he'd worked with various Beatles and whatnot. Yep. So he was going to produce the thing. They were thinking of it as a music project. You know, right. they thought, you know, I guess um, Ferris's idea was let's cast a wide net, let's get music from all over the planet, and secondly, let's make a good record. Well, and as a musician, I hate to interject here and say that music is like one of our highest accomplishments. It's certainly unique to us, or at least, well, wait a minute, bird song and insect song Crickets. and whale song. I guess it's not unique to us. It's one of the things that we do on this planet, make music. You and crows and whales. That's why you like those guys. <clears throat> you know, crow music is not the stuff to sit down with yeah, and you could have say a that glass about, of wine. You could say that about metal machine music too, you know? Yeah, that's true. I wonder what the crows think of metal machine music. <laughs> yeah, I bet it really speaks to them. If you were to, so well, let me ask you this, like as a musician, how much of what is music do you think is arbitrary or at least, you know, specific to us? Like would, which musical genres could an alien listen to and just kind of start nodding its head or if it has a head? I mean, this is music theory, uh, right? That these are not random. The relationships between tones are not right. There's random. Math. There's a lot of math. Music is math. So I remember this Donald, this Donald Duck cartoon that taught me that if you pluck a string and then you divide the string in half and pluck it again, it goes an octave up. Mm -hmm. Now divide the next section and the next. Pythagoras discovered the octave had a ratio of two to one. You do find most nuggets in the darndest places. And that's true, right? Like actual geometric 
and arithmetic proportions are in chords and tones, right? They, they absolutely are. And then their relationship to one another harmonically is also like there's a math relationship. It's it's a relationship of tones and semitones. The music portion actually does. I'm just wondering, like, you know, we're, we're going to send all these music genres into space. Is it just going to be like noise to them? Like, could we have sent anything? I mean, do we send, are there entire songs or are they just like, is it a, truly like a, like a compilation where there's 20 seconds of. It's just samples. Uh, so first of all, it doesn't start with music. It starts with greetings in like 55 different languages. And the first greeting message is a spoken welcome from the secretary general of the United Nations. Right. Which on paper seems like a great idea. Super Star Trek to have your world government welcome the aliens. At the time. Unfortunately, <laughs> the Secretary General at the time was Kurt Waldheim. Oh, former Nazi. Who we later found out in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not a Nazi party member, but he was in the Wehrmacht. Sure. Like he was some um, Oberleutnant in Serbia when they, you know, and what, all kinds of civilian massacres were going on. His office was 20 miles from a concentration camp. Yeah. He personally approved an anti-Semitic kill all the Jews kind of propaganda. Oopsie daisy. So this guy is who we're having greet the aliens. So maybe we should have stuck with the wife beating Liverpudlian. Well, now l let me ask this. There, there is, I think the plot of, of that Jodie Foster science fiction movie. That's also a Carl Sagan book, by the way. Which is a Carl Sagan book that, uh, the plot was that the first thing we sent out interstellarly was the initial television broadcast, which was of Hitler. Yeah, it's like the Berlin Olympics or something. Right. So so this would be the first sort of indication that they had, like, oh, check it out. This is more than just radio. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep sending them Nazis into space? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's not the it's not the message we want to send. It's not I mean, you and I end up talking about Nazis on this show way too much. Right. So I talk about Nazis on all of my shows too much. <laughs> <laughs> so which is weird to think about now. It's just some weird human thing that like perversely we can't help like telling the aliens, hey, uh, by the way. Listen, uh, here's our worst. <laughs> I guess it's always uphill from there. You don't want to, you know a lot about how to sequence a record. Would, yeah. would, would you start with the best song? No, the best song is always third. Ah. Your, hit, your hit song is always third. And then the first song on side two. Okay. So would you start with an Austrian Nazi? No, you start with something a little bit weird. I mean, Austrian there Nazis. There you go. That's a little bit weird. I don't know. Like maybe what you'd send out is Hitler's paintings. Those are a little <laughs> weird and they don't suggest what comes later. They were going to have Waldheim's message be followed by... Um, Jimmy Carter, right? Jimmy Carter has a written thing on the uh, uh, plaque. I guess if he'd been a more popular president, he might have gotten a few minutes on the record. Is his written thing like drive 55 miles an hour <laughs> and put solar power panels on if your roof? space is cold, put on a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just some kind of, we come in peace, uh, please don't eat us, love Jimmy. Right. Basically. Uh, That's what I would have said. They were going to get UN di diplomats to say hello in all these different languages, and it turned out to be logistically anonymous. They just ended up at Cornell having foreign language faculty speak to them. So you get hello and welcome messages in all kinds of languages. From a bunch of Cornell faculty. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I had a French teacher that didn't really speak French very well. I, I, I have my doubts. When I was in college, I was in favor of sending the faculty, like all of them into space, not just, not just their voices. <laughs> so it's Spanish and Chinese, but it's also Hungarian and Urdu and it's... Pashtun. Yeah, it's, it's old languages too. It's like 
ancient Hittite and, and, and whatnot. But this is a weird thing to send. Right. Like, are we thinking they know one of them? Hi, 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 They're going to, they're going to, they're going to be like listening. They're going to be like, don't know that one. Don't know that one. Don't know that one. Hey, Aramaic. Right. But the problem is you can't interpret. I mean, the only way they would be able to learn a language would be to have enough of it Mm -hmm. to be able to put together. It would be a code for them to unlock, but just saying hi in 200 different ways, there's, there wouldn't be enough context. Like a, a lot of the things are between like three and four seconds. That's Hello. How, you know, in Portuguese. How's it going? In Portuguese, the Portuguese speaker, who, by the way, uh, this says his name, Janet Sternberg, <laughs> a, a, a great Brazilian name. She just says, you know, paz e felicidade a todos, you know, peace and happiness to everyone. Right. It's Ringo Starr, basically. Right. And then it just moves on. Like that's not enough to reverse engineer Portugal from. This seems really dumb. That's a waste of time. Like, think of the bonus tracks that were left off. Well, here's the, what's confusing is that I think a future uh, distant intelligence would logically conclude that this, all of it taken together would constitute a language They're going to spend centuries trying to decode this. And they're just like, what could this possibly mean? The vowels change every four seconds. And somebody will come up with a way like, oh, okay, here's what, you know, th- this is, these are the vowels that reoccur. So this must be this, that, and the other, you know, there's going to be some Chomsky, uh, some distant Chomsky that's like, let me tell you what this language really conveys about the, about the essence of this life form. After the maybe possibly ill-advised foreign languages, then there's a sound effects portion of the program. Cool. Like doors slamming and uh, guns going off. (laughs) Yeah. It's like Foley stuff. It's like (laughs) typing and then it's like somebody walking down a hall, somebody walking down a hallway. It's a radio play, basically. <laughs> the, the police academy guy is like, <laughs> no, it's a, uh, it's chronological. It starts with um, your math is music. It starts with the music of the spheres, which I guarantee the aliens are not going to understand. <laughs> the music of the spheres. Like they take the the um, changing orbital velocities of the planets of the solar system, as per Kepler's laws. Right. Translate them into uh, sound using some obscure equations. But that is not what the Greeks meant when they said the music of the spheres. They didn't think you could actually listen to it? Well, I don't think they were calculating. Well, they did uh, think there were kind of great harmonies. Like people loved that there were seven planets, like sun, moon, and five planets, because that would be like the seven. That's why we have Roy G. Biv, the seven colors, and that would match the seven notes of the... Yeah, that was the Greeks. The Greeks had the had well, you know. I guess we called it later the uh, musica universalis, which was this sort of philosophical sense of the harmony. Shitty stuff they play in Greek restaurants. Uh, no, like that's, with the like the ding, ding, those ding, are little ding. balalaikas, or I'm, I'm not sure what the Greeks call them. But that's that's not. No, I don't think that's the music of the spheres. This was, you know, this was like the sun and the moon and the. Right. And everyone thought there was a grand drama going on and the equations that governed it could be expressed in music. Right. Well, I mean, you know, that you just described indie rock. There's a grand drama going on that could be expressed in music. (laughs) I think the music might be incidental to a lot of the drama in indie rock. I don't know. Um, So it's, you know, it's uh, chronological. It starts with that. And then there's all kinds of natural sounds, volcanoes, earthquakes, thunderstorms mud, you know, then the oceans appear. So you get water noises. Again, they're going to be trying to interpret this as a language. They're going to be like. Well, and then you get to animals. So then it's like crickets, frogs, and birds. Like, and how are they going to know? Oh, these are, this is not language. Obviously they're sending us their pets for some reason. Oh no. 
This is, I mean, I, I, I understand the, the, the motivation, right? Like, well, let's get it all on there. But like <laughs> there, wow. You have to, you have to wonder, I mean, at least in omnibus, it's us speaking the whole time. So if you can, if you can discern you think our the language, adver- maybe the advertisements confuse people. I think it's probably going to be the references to Hitler that confuse them. <laughs> Hitler and REM. They're going to be like, why are they talking about REM so much? They talked about Paul McCartney like three shows in a row. Yeah, like the whole second half of those guys' uh, catalogs are just not that good. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. The, I guess the hope is that there's some kind of parallel evolution going on. I see. We hope that whatever species finds this, you know, there's Also there, has there, mud. <laughs> <laughs> and crickets. Uh-huh. Like there are forces that whatever forces shaped our evolution might shape other life that, um, you know, evolved in a similar kind of a world. Like it seems genius to put the hydrogen, the atomic hydrogen spectrum on there as sure. a way of, of saying but, like, here's our base point. Here's like where the metric system starts. But there's no context for the sound well, of a mosquito. But you can't just tell people over and over about Hydrogen. I mean, I, I once had a pastor say to me, um, if you already agreed with everything that was true, you wouldn't need God or you wouldn't need, you know, him to send prophets, you know, like. Right. That's the argument of scientists. That's the argument too, against religion. That's <laughs> the argument against it, right. But, but it really resonates with me because I believe there probably are true things that I'm against because I'm not a great guy in some ways. Right. You know? I see. So you can't just keep telling the aliens about hydrogen. You got to tell them something new. You got to give them something. You got to give them crickets. Well, this is what's interesting about music and so many other things is that when you get to the bottom of them, they are math relationships. And it has always seemed to me that math is the language of the gods and of the universe and you could communicate exclusively maybe i mean that's this, why i love like thomas dolby and uh yeah. <laughs> but prog the more math the better in my rock as i guess far as we, i'm concerned we are now at this point in our evolution engaged in a, trying to understand emotions and and thoughts and human experience by using math like as as we scan brain waves and so forth we're trying to collect enough data to be able to see those things as reproducible, which ultimately means math relationships. If you can look at a brainwave, you're looking at a wave form. And if it is communicating information like the grooves of a record, that's what we're trying to discern and we haven't yet. We did actually send them brainwaves. Really? Yeah. A woman named Anne Druyan, who was Tim Ferris's fiance. Hello. uh, What was it? Was she just chosen randomly? Well, this is, this is a little soap opera that, you know, would make indie 
rock blush. Uh-huh. I don't know if anybody has talked about this as much, but what I what I have learned is that Tim Ferriss and his fiance were working on this record together with Carl Sagan and his wife Linda. Oh my god, key party mixtape. <laughs> and a few <laughs> a few years later, I guess Carl uh and Andrew and his Cosmos producer got together and I guess it was a while before Tim and Linda heard about it. <gasps> so Carl Sagan ended up married to Tim Ferriss's fiance. Whoa, and it's all on this record. I wonder if the UFOs are going to like sense this. They're going to be like there is wife swapping on this record. So her- it's like it's like that Richard and Linda Thompson record where you can just watch their relationship decay as you listen to it. Well, it sounds like Fleetwood Mac's rumors. Exactly, it's like rumors. So you you the aliens put this on and they're like, oh man, they're just going through some stuff, aren't they? Yeah. Well, so uh, so so uh, Tim and Carl agreed that they would hook Anne up to a, I guess an EEG yeah, machine, EKG, or and they EKG. just had her li- think about stuff. Really? And and she says that I don't know. She says at the end she she um, dares to think about love. Oh, and I think Carl we, Sagan. I think we now know she's thinking about love with Carl Sagan oh. and not her fiance who is producing with him. Oh my goodness. And so, yeah. This is so seventies. If the aliens listen to the brainwaves, they might hear this woman contemplating leaving her fiance for the sexy married astronomer. So to the degree that we were capable at the time, we recorded brainwaves, which maybe wasn't a complete uh, ability, but we did, we, we recognized what brainwaves were and recorded them and right. sent them out. And now they're going to be asked to interpret those. And that may be the, that actually may be the closest thing to. I'm, a, I'm skeptical that yeah. they can take a 1977 hospital bed recording of brainwaves and like break it down and be like, ah, she's thinking about her man. I am too. But you know, that the premise of that more recent uh, science fiction movie where the, the UFO came and they were like octopuses right. and squirting ink circles. And then, you know, our heroine had to, had to interpret them. It changed the way her brain worked to learn their language. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's the million dollar question, right? Our emotions are our emotions and our sense of beauty and truth. Are those things that are um, codifiable or are they, are they whimsical and transient? And also imagine if they put you in a hospital bed and plugged you in and said, just think about what you want to give to the the cosmos. Right. Like I'd be like immediately thinking about like just crazy stuff like peanut butter or um, car chases. Or I'd, I'd immediately be thinking weird, of weird porn or, you know. Master of Reality by Black Sabbath. I'd just be there like, <laughs> don't know. The brainwaves are a guitarist. <laughs> Like, she, you know, she must have thought of weird stuff. Like, this is how, like, the, you know, the guy thinks about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, you know, at the wrong time. Of course, but, and it would also, just as you're saying, like, the the thoughts wouldn't be consistent and clean. Right. Her own voice would be in there, you know, like, consciously thinking of things. Like, how would any of that make the sense? The aliens are going to come and they're going to look like Andrean's childhood fears. Oh, sure. The monster that lived in her closet or her messed up relationship with her dad yeah, or, or sure. whatever it is. Uh, her dad arrives and he's like, I'm, I'm the guy, right? I mean, you all <laughs> recognize me. Andrean's dad. I'm a little aloof. I'll never love you enough. <laughs> <laughs> After the, they, they include sounds of human technology as well, that the sound effect reel winds up with sounds of fire and tool use, which, you know, you would think a lot of, every civilization's got to get fire, right? Unless they're not an oxygen environment. 
I yeah, know. I don't know some kind of fire, but it, but you would have to have ears to to be able to perceive the sound as being a thing. But I guess the whole thing presumes yeah, the whole thing presumes they're setting up some kind of audio amplification of this, right? At, rather than just seeing it as ones and zeros, which you the, know, the sounds of um, domesticating animals, the sounds of Morse code saying to the stars through hard work. Huh. which I believe is the motto of Kansas, now that I think about it, not the band. Uh-huh. Um, then, Should have been the motto of the band. Then, then trains, ships, jets, rockets, and so forth. That's, oh, I see. That's this is the chronological yes. evolution. So I wonder, if we were doing this today, we would absolutely be encoding all of this in a digital media, and it would go out as ones and zeros. It would go out as just a stream of ones and zeros, right? Why would, I mean, because the way a record works is that these grooves have tiny little mm-hmm. bumps and, and valleys and the needle kind of roughly travels over these things. But that, it kind of makes it more universal, right? I because guess. Because the needle produces something like the actual sound. Something electromagnetical rather than just, you know, here's a bunch of ones and zeros, like yeah, figure if, it out. If you can interpret these ones and zeros in the right chunks and assign them waveforms in the same way we did. Well, that that's what's so curious about binary, like encoding everything in binary. I mean, you can make the Beatles White Album take the form of, you know, on off. I could dig a series of holes in my yard that are, I guess I should not use an REM record. No, maybe I should. Go ahead. <laughs> it could be anything. Uh-huh. Like I can make a it dig could be a, the man on the moon. I can, <laughs> exactly. Like it, it can be anything. You know, I can open a door. I can sit and open and close a door in a certain pattern that would match the pits on a compact disc playing Master of Reality. Right. But, but, so the record probably does seem like it's better for the long alien fingers. Yeah, interesting to think about. I mean, it's they definitely didn't put a book with paper. There should have been a nice coffee table book. Which seems like, yeah, right? They put a Gutenberg Bible in there. Take the one from uh, Yale University <laughs> Library. They have two. <laughs> See what Cornell's got. <laughs> they, uh, they put video on the record as well, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things on the cover is instructions as to how to turn this waveform, not just into audio, but take 512 scan lines, you know, adjust it till you get a circle. The very first picture is a circle. So that's like their tuning image. Oh, right. Once that's a circle, they can look at all the rest of the pictures. White balance. <laughs> right, Exactly. And the pictures are, it's basically, they're sending them a National Geographic. Yeah, right. It's like uh, pictures of the earth, pictures of people doing stuff. Did they sneak a naked girl into this? There's a a Guatemalan woman breastfeeding, it looks like. That's about as hot as it gets. That must have uh, scandalized Jerry Falwell. He might not have gotten that far into the album. (laughs) They, uh, there are human, there's a picture of human sex organs, it says, but it's a black and white diagram. It's not... Carl Sagan's selfies. Oh, I roll my eyes so hard at that, but. But pictures of the planets, uh, pictures of, um, you know, the Taj Mahal, dams, you know, beautiful natural stuff, trees and flowers and sandies. That's what I'd be interested if I mm-hmm. went to a planet. I'd be like, what kind of flowers you got? Sure. I wouldn't be like, what do your trains sound like? No, like, I th- you, you, you might be, but. I think, well, sure, absolutely I would. But I think your first question is always, what are your top predators, and are they bigger than us? <laughs> they, uh, they, they include a crocodile. So the aliens will get some sense that maybe the fact that there's one crocodile picture and, you know, a few dozen human pictures, hopefully they'll know we are not the crocodile. Right, right. And, you know, d- dancing Balinese, Balinese dancers and, you know, Thai craftsmen and some athletic achievement. There's, like, sprinters. 
Did they send the French dip sandwich, our highest achievement? There appears to be no food whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Would you send photos of food? Well, the danger is that they think you are sending photos of food, which is all these Balinese <laughs> dancers. Demonstration of licking, eating, and drinking. That's Oh, there's one picture called Chinese Dinner Party. And one that says, demonstration of licking, eating, and drinking. Hmm. And it appears to be... Sounds oh, like Friday night at my house. So, <laughs> do you start with licking? Because that's what's going on here. <laughs> there's a person at left licking a chocolate ice cream cone, a guy in the middle eating what appears to be a grilled cheese sandwich, but there's a bite from the opposite side as well, the side he's not eating. Whoa. So I don't know how he eats his sandwich. Well, they're going to think that that's, it's like a friendship gesture, like one grilled cheese sandwich, two mouths. Yeah, it's like a lady in the tramp moment. I'm glad we they did not show that. And then there's a, a guy at left... Um, drinking from a bong, maybe I can't, a, like, a, like a big kind of glass wine jug, pour, like pouring something into his mouth from a height, like, um, like a Galician shepherd might do, I right. guess. This seems like a issue of Omni magazine, <laughs> right. heavy metal. It, there's kind of weird stuff encoded in these pictures now that it's kind of like a weird, there's a weird kind of Scientologist vibe to some of this stuff. Uh, anyway, so all these pictures, the only celebrity we sent them is Jane Goodall. Mm -hmm. the famous primatologist still alive in our era. There's a picture of her with some chimps. So I guess to show that we're nice to our animals and, and like and like to hang out with them. Or to show us contrasted with the chimps because maybe the difference wouldn't be immediately evident. That's true. That would be rude if they couldn't tell our primates apart. Right. Then it ends with music, quite a bit of music. Almost 90 minutes, it looks like. Wow. Of Is that right? You know, the the uh, a typical record album is about 15 to 20 minutes aside. Because if you get, if the grooves get smaller than that, you lose a lot of definition. So the reason that a vinyl record, the reason that albums used to be basically under 60 minutes, um, often 30 minutes for an entire record, two-sided record, is that the bigger the grooves are, the better the music. Right. And so you can't put 90 minutes on a, on a vinyl album. Uh, that was why when music became a digital form when the CD came about. Uh, albums got much longer and I would argue not better. I think CDs were engineered, have we said this on the show before, specifically for uh, Beethoven's Ninth, I think. The Japanese uh, executive who helped invent the CD really wanted Beethoven's Ninth to fit. and that's The whole thing without having to flip the album over. Right. That's why CDs are the length they are. Well, I mean, maybe we should have made all our records out of gold-plated copper. Yeah, right. If they're made out of copper, maybe they have that... Um, Maybe they have more resolution. Or maybe the, the residents of Tau Ceti 2 are not audiophiles. Uh -huh. So they're like, oh, this is MP3 quality. It's fine. <laughs> it's not a headphone record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a few dozen musical selections from all over the globe. So you get, you know, pit, uh, pan pipes from the Solomon Islands and, um, uh, you know, West African rain sticks and Australian didgeridoos. Uh, but there's a lot, awful lot of classical music. Sure. There's, um, like three Bach pieces and two beta. It's exactly what you would think these square seventies dads would put on a record and be like, yeah. Sure. They're putting their, they got their turtlenecks on up there at Ithaca and they're like, oh, we've got to get Rachmaninoff it's on there. so lame. We can only get one aria from the magic flute. How are the aliens going to deal? Sure. With just, how do you choose one, man? Well, that stuff's not controversial at the time, right? You know, nobody's going to say like, Oh, this Haydn piece is uh, like so sexy. It's so racy. We can't put it on there. That actually was a problem. Uh, Carl Sagan was not into putting modern music on. Really? Um, they got uh, 
Iovine got, uh, what's his name? Alan Lomax, uh-huh. kind of yeah. the music anthropologist who went around America, you know. He's the one that- The that, Woody uh, Guthrie guy. Yeah, that saved so much of folk music. Delta, and the, Delta blues and yeah. stuff. Um, they had him as a consultant and he, to- he told them, well, if you want one blues piece, Blind Willie Johnson. And if you want one jazz piece, here's some indispensable Louis Armstrong Dixieland. And that's what got on, basically. All this classical and then world music and then like one blues piece, one Dixieland piece, and then one- rock piece which is chuck berry doing johnny be good hmm. uh, and carl singen did not want johnny be good you know johnny be good is is uh supposedly written by chuck about his own piano player not he did not carry his piano in a gunny sack he carried uh, his guitar in the song but he was really it was really about his piano player i thought he stole it from marty mcfly Oh, well, he got the riff from Marty McFly. <laughs> Your kids are going to love it. Blues and E, follow me for the changes. Um, isn't that interesting? So the so uh, the future UFO Rolling Stones are going to have their work cut out for them trying to... They're going to have to reverse everything from Johnny B. Good. Right. Which has, you know, I don't know. Well, I'm blind four, Willie three chords. Jo- Johnson. Uh, so yeah, uh, Anne played, Anne wanted Johnny B. Good and Carl didn't want it, but I guess you can start to see the romance budding there. He called it awful, uh, an adolescent... And Lomax agreed, like, this is, this is adolescent. Like we could have two jazz pieces and you're putting on Chuck Berry. Right. And, uh. But and, not Master of Reality, which <laughs> was already out by this point. And Carl Sagan, uh, had been, you know, persuaded by Anne, you know, uh, however that worked. Mm. And he told Alan, Lom- Alan Lomax, this is very adolescent, Carl. And Carl said, well, Earth is full of adolescence. The aliens have got to know. Zing. There's a longstanding rumor that they were going to put on Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles as a joke. And Ferris says that is not true. He says, it's not the Beatles' strongest work. And the witticism of the title, if charming in the short run, seemed unlikely to remain funny for a billion years. (laughs) Wow. That's his standard. (laughs) Oh, you want a pun on your gold copper record? Well, how funny is that going to be in... 4 billion AD. The thing is, uh, even 4 billion years from now, they're going to expect us to punch up. <laughs> the, they, they said that they put Bach and Beethoven on for mathematical reasons. Like you yeah. can see a lot of the musical relationships that undergird Western music there. It it's, follows enough rules that aliens could kind of reverse engineer yep, yep. what our music means. And in the takeout groove, Tim Ferriss, inspired by... John Lennon, who used to do this kind of prank with the Beatles, put a little message that said, to the makers of music, all worlds, all times. Wow, that's some hip, what, hippie talk. One planet, one people. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm going to tell your conservative friends to start taunting you with now. To the makers of music, all worlds, all times. <laughs> but NASA got wind of this and they were like, what? That is not in the specs. Right. And NASA got super mad about the, this. The playout groove. About the, the little playout groove message. And uh, Sagan really had to go to bat for it. And finally, NASA said, okay, fine. But it wasn't in the specs. So Sagan thought that that was not adolescent. He thought that that was like some kind of deep truth. That's the kind of thing he was always writing to the makers of music, all worlds, all times. You know, do you know the gold record is now available in our time? It it became a super successful Kickstarter uh, last year. You could buy a a copper plated gold record? Uh, I think it was colored gold, but in this case, over wax or shellac or whatever they use now, whatever polymer they use. And now. you can put it on your own record player, but you, you, it, it can't play the images. It cannot play the images. You're right. I, I think it comes with a book. It was, a uh, for many years, there were rights problems and different people control different songs. That's another thing that drives me absolutely bananas to think that somebody would be like, well, 
you know, what are our royalty payments on this that we're sending four billion years into the into space? Do you think Chuck Berry's uh, estate is going to be mad if the aliens don't pay up? I'll tell you what. So you can buy it today, but the probe is still uh, the probe is still out there. It exited the solar system in 2012. Um, one of the last things it did before the cameras turned off in 1990 was to turn back to Earth and take a picture of us. It's a pretty famous picture called Pale Blue Dot. Um, and Sagan wrote about it. You know, our planet's just a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. You know, it's a kind of it's a kind of existential crisis to look at the Earth as it's seen from the outer planets of the solar system. To think about Voyager still gives me chills. It's still talking to us. Did you know this? I did. I did. And it's, you know, it turns itself on and beams back some stuff and we beam stuff to it. Once a day, it sends back, uh, it's got this little tiny, you know, the, the wattage is the same as a refrigerator door light, basically. But by building bigger and bigger dishes, we've been able to keep hearing the stuff it sends us every day. Nowadays, we don't hear it till 19 hours after it sends because that's how far away it is. But even so, that's just, that's just extraordinary and, and, and beautiful. And it feels like something we should do and, and should always do. We should be sending voyagers out in every direction, just not with maps. Just with and, more, and, with, and with better music, yeah, maybe? more rock and roll, <laughs> right? Like, why is there? It's 1977. There's not a single disco song on here. Um, the systems are going to start shutting down. On you know, it's going to run out of the plutonium that powers it around 2030. So, in the next few years, NASA is going to start selectively shutting down different parts of the Voyager probes. Um, but they're going to keep going. We don't know when or if anyone will ever find it. If there will ever be an audience for. Blind Willie Johnson and the breastfeeding lady and Andrea and having dirty thoughts about leaving her fiance. Sure, we couldn't know. Um, but in 40,000 years, it will come close to a star within a couple light years. That's as close as, that's close by interstellar terms, uh, to, a, to a red dwarf called Gliese 445 in the constellation Camelleopardus, the giraffe. And who knows? Maybe, maybe in 40,000 years, there will be an audience. You can go outside tonight and look for if you have a telescope, look for a, a dim red star 12 degrees south of Polaris. And that could be the first audience for the Voyager Golden Records. Well, in 2030, we'll still be doing the omnibus if our world hasn't come to a, a dramatic conclusion. Fingers crossed. And uh, at that point, you and I should pour out a little bit of green Gatorade for our dying friend. And that concludes the Voyager Golden Records. Entry 1403.ju0113. Certificate number 34914 in the omnibus. Listeners, at this point in time, we have not managed to encode this podcast into a golden record. It's coming. But that we're, is we're our hard goal. At work. That is our goal, and we will make it available on SoundCloud. Uh, it will have more rock and roll in it. Um, but in the unlikely event, although we hope it is likely that you are now you have in, you have decoded our voices and are listening to this in your future world, your future space world. Thank you, by the way. Like I feel yeah. like after thinking about the golden records, I really uh, appreciate um, the hard work our audience has done. Yeah. To try to decipher. The, the music of our spheres. <laughs> right. Um, do not follow whatever clues we've left to come to Earth and destroy us or eat us. Uh, but you can, uh, I'm sure that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have all 
like space monetized their platforms so that you will be able to read Ken's tweets, which are often hilarious, sometimes very divisive, um, at our handles, Ken Jennings and John Roderick, at, uh, on those platforms. And uh, we have those same Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and whatever comes in the future under at Omnibus Project. We will adopt all that stuff immediately. We love getting on the ground floor of new social media platforms. We sure do. So it's our number one thing. Look for at Omnibus Project wherever you, uh, wherever finer social media is sold. I like to be pedantically corrected in my pronunciation in every format. <laughs> also, uh, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com and uh, you can go to Facebook. Our fan page there is the Omnibus Futurelings and they are wonderful and hilarious people. Hypothetical people. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survives. It will probably be long gone by the time the Voyager probes reach constellation Camellia Partis. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that will inevitably end our days does not come soon. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all recordings, may be our final word, the final track on our golden record to you. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon, at least one more time, for one more entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>